Hey friends, you're listening to a crossover episode of Concierge Minister Podcast and Church for Atheists Podcast. In this episode, we interview Rima Sukumaran, my sister, who recently wrote a book called Beautifully Broken, available now on Amazon.com. My host, Michael, from Church for Atheists, did most of the interviewing, since it would have been pretty weird to ask my sister questions that I already knew the answer to. A quick warning to our listeners, today's episode contains themes of violence, domestic abuse, and rape. You are listening to the Concierge Minister Podcast, a place to grow, learn, and be inspired as you discover God's purpose for your life. Here's your host, the pastor you've always wanted without the church, Dr. Kumar Dixit. So Rima, I am so excited to be talking to you about the new book, Beautifully Broken. First of all, I love the name, so I want you to tell us a little bit about why you chose that name. Well, I believe that my life has been broken and it's taken me a long time to kind of come to the place of healing and acceptance. It's kind of like um, a scar, you know, you get hurt, you fall down and it's gushing and you put a bandaid on it, you know, you're trying to stop the ooze and stop the pain. At some point you have to take the bandaid off. As you take the bandaid off, that scar tends to heal you're left with the scar. And so that's really my life. My book is about sharing all about the scars and how I've grown to love those scars. That's awesome. So so that now has me, you know, drawn in. So I want to know more about about the scars. You know, it's never it's never fun to actually get cut or get the bruise or the scrape that caused the scar, but I know that I mean they definitely give us character at least in my experience. So if you think back in your life. I know the book is a memoir and it kind of goes through your your entire life uh, up to this point. If you think back to the first, the first injury that caused a scar in your life, what would you say that was? Well, I would say it was my father. You and Kumar have daughters and I know you would do anything for them. And I know your daughters know that they could come to you with anything. And very early on as a toddler and maybe two, three years old, I have a memory of my dad, you know, on all fours, giving me horsey rides and playing with me and little tea parties and just loving me. One of the biggest things that um, I remember is walking to the corner store for milk or walking across the road and my dad holding my hand. That seems like something really simple that most parents, we take our children's hand and, you know, to keep them safe. And to this day, I have the uh, physical feeling of what it was like to hold my dad's hand. And that hand loved me, but eventually that hand started to hurt me physically. So, you know, I asked my mom, the first time my dad actually hurt me was at the age of one. And I was, you know, as as a baby, playing with my hands and smacking him on the head playfully. And he took his, he took his knuckle and he hit my head and he in rage said, don't ever raise your hand at me. You know, obviously I don't remember that, but it was very traumatic for me to, you know, hear that story because none of us would hurt our babies. And at a year, I mean, they just, they're so physical and they want to hug you and hold you. And so even though I didn't remember that, I would say after the age of four, three, four years old, his touch became very, um, very scary and hurtful. That's, I mean, I'm sorry, that's really, really sad to hear. And 
again, thinking, like you said, thinking about, you know, how as parents, we, we love our kids now. I know you have, you know, lots of boys that you've raised and are all amazing and you're a great mom. And just to kind of think of that, you know, the brokenness in that father daughter relationship is just really sad. Now, was your dad consistently that way? Or do you also have, you know, some glimmers of those, those happy moments in your childhood also? Um, of course, we had moments, but that's all they were. I mean, my dad was like a volcano. You never knew what was going to cause him to erupt. I mean, I don't want to give too much away from my book, but for an example, dropping the toilet seat lid or giving him his wrong spoon that he preferred. I mean, they're just all these little things that um, would just set him off. You never knew what was going to set him off. Um, but then there were moments, but in those moments that were nice, you still were holding your breath because you didn't know what was going to happen. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that sounds, I mean, that sounds really scary. Yeah. I wanted to ask because, you know, in, in a lot of ways, he was a very different person in the house than he was out in public. So in public, he was a very gregarious, fun person. He was kind of the center of attention, very humorous, good looking. I mean, very much like me, I would say, Michael. I mean, just... <laughs> Except the good looking. A lot of those similar traits. So, <laughs> did, did you ever feel, Rima, kind of that there, there was a kind of a contradiction that existed with him, that he was such a different person outside of the home than where he was inside the house? Very much so. I remember this um, one moment we were in church and there was this little child and this was after church and there was potluck and this little child was walking in the hallways and he was obviously lost and crying and my dad didn't know I was around the corner to see this no one else was there and my dad picked up the little boy and held him and was soothe soothing him with words as he went to find his parents and I remember that just to this day made such an impact on my heart because I thought wow why could we not have experienced that um, lovingness that other people saw as Kumar said he was very much often a different person in public it was actually very sad because, you know, he loved other people more than he was able to love his own family. You're listening to the Concierge Minister podcast with Dr. Kumar Dixit. If you found this podcast helpful to your spiritual journey, please make sure you give us a five-star rating and subscribe to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Also, remember to share this podcast with your friends and family. Now let's get back to the conversation with Kumar. Why do you think why do you think that was? Like do you have a theory of why he was so different? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, that's that's something I think I've wrestled with for a long time. I do believe my dad loved us, but my dad again was very broken. I think at home it was safe for him to just let loose all those insecurities, you know, by beating us, by releasing his anger. I don't really know the answer to that, but I think that Sometimes, you know, we treat the people we love the most, sometimes the ugliest. I don't know. Like, I mean, he let loose at home, but I, I guess I struggle with the fact that he was broken. I don't know if he even understood what love was or that he, what he needed to be loved. So I'll tell you, I mean, in, in my experience, that definitely is, you know, often true when somebody is so, you know, abusive or angry, it is that they're broken. And so the question then becomes how much of it could they help, right? Like how much of it was, 
you know, something that was out of their reach to be able to control. So as a child or as a teen or as an adult, at what point, because it seems like you have a pretty good context now for, for his brokenness, at what point did you arrive at that, at that, at that, you know, that level of comfort with what you, it seems to me that you're saying, you know, he could or could not necessarily change about himself. Right, right. Interestingly enough, I think that I'll speak for my brother too. Um, I think all three of us have a big piece of my dad in us. You know, we are able to, we're pretty quick tempered. It's easy to set us off if we're not in control. And what I had to learn is my emotional and psychological health, uh, health played a big part of that. I had to realize that I have a lot of issues later in life, actually, in my mid 40s is when I realized that I struggle with a lot of mental health issues. You know, today we talk about it. Today there's help for that. There's a stigma still, but what I learned is seeking help, there's freedom in that. You know, I, I call it my crazy pill. Like if I don't take my medication that I'm on, I will be crazy. In fact, my kids will say sometimes, I remember saying, oh, I'm almost out of my pill. And um, one of my boys <laughs> said, uh, shouldn't you have backup? <laughs> <laughs> Did they offer to like rush to the pharmacy? Yes, <laughs> yes. like... As a family, we've gone through a lot with my mental health. And um, I've learned to be very open with that because I think part of that breaks the cycle. I want my kids to know that some of this is hereditary. It stinks, but it's hereditary. And I'm open about my mental health so that they will realize that if they have issues, we can talk about it. And drugs is a great thing. You know, we, we are lucky in this generation that we have help. We just have to seek it. It's been a long journey, my mental health, you know, and I talk a lot about it where I really was broken and um, it affected our whole family. You know, you know, I think the sad thing about my dad was that in the seventies and eighties, I don't think we knew about mental health, but there wasn't a lot of knowledge about it and certainly not publicly spoken about. I think my dad could have been a totally different person had he been able to seek help, but you have mm -hmm. to be willing to want help. You know, I remember many times my dad would tell me my mom was crazy. You know, it was kind of scary. Like I remember being Andrews and saying, I went to Andrews and my dad was saying in university that, you know, your mom is crazy. The doctors have said X, Y, Z. Because I believed him, it was frightening to know that my mom was suffering. The reality is, you know, he was controlling. My dad was a narcissist by definition. When you learn all those things, you realize, you know, how broken he really was. And it's very sad because he lost so much. Absolutely. So Rima, do you think that there were any, also, also any cultural or maybe religious elements to your dad's behavior? You know, I really had to think about that because we were immigrants. Uh, when we moved to Canada, our circle was pretty small. And so there was abuse in our circle of you know, family or other people that we knew, like, for example, in the 70s, you know, parents would spank their kids and not just with their hand, they would spank them. If you remember, I don't know if you're old enough, Michael, but I remember, you, remember <laughs> you know, you'd go to school and if you did something wrong, the, the teacher would put you in the hallway and you'd get those the paddles. They were huge, you know, and so that was the norm. So that's kind of what we grew up with. When your parent is smacking you, you just think, okay, well, I did something wrong. And when my dad was hitting my mom, I'm not sure exactly the younger me what I thought about that. Because I saw rage in other families and other people, I think I just assumed that 
beating their wife was natural, but not something we saw. Mm -hmm. So that is a good picture. I mean, I feel like you've given us already just in, you know, your descriptions, a good idea of what childhood felt like to you and what the home felt like to you. So I'm sure that the readers of the book will, you know, get way more detail, but tell us how, how you think all of that affected you as you moved from being a child into more teenage, late teenager or early adulthood. What of those scars did you take with you and how did they impact your life as a young adult? So physically, I will say that those scars impacted me because you never knew when my dad was going to snap, right? And so I think naturally I'm a jumpy person just from, you know, growing up with that. My mom definitely was. Living with my dad as I grew um, older and left the home, the hurt that I experienced with my dad became bigger hurts because I think what happens is when you grow up in a home and your father, the person that's supposed to love you and, and you know, love you unconditionally doesn't, you tend to seek that love other places. And we had lots of um, amazing people in our life growing up. Pastors were one of those people. They were safe. They were loving. They were kind, you know, and um, my dad was very spiritually abusive. So, you know, we were a very religious family. We did everything, go to church. We did Sabbath school. We did Pathfinder. I mean, our lives revolved around church. So my dad was able to, you know, turn on his, his nice side in church and people thought he was an amazing person. And so we made a lot of uh, friendships within the church community. And for me, pastors were very safe. You know, they're up on the pulpit. They're kind. They're loving. They seem to love their family. They would reach out to us. And so they were very safe to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Were you aware of that or was it more just, you know, subconscious? Yeah, I had no, I had no awareness of that. It was just, you know, just, oh, it's a nice person without realizing you're looking for affirmation from somebody. Right. And so, I mean, you talk about, you know, finding, you know, what feels like a safe place or, you know, home outside the home at church. I mean, were you very involved in church? I mean, it sounds like you were living a very rigorous church life. <laughs> yes, we were. We loved, we lived and breathed in church. Yeah. As, as a person in church, and was it the entire family, you know, you went to the church, everybody was involved, and there was no point in time that anyone from church, either a church pastor or anyone, attempted to help or intervene with your dad because they weren't aware? They weren't aware. And I will, um, I'll say once, I think my mom was pregnant with Kumar, actually. Um, she went to her doctor and the doctor realized she was living with abuse. The doctor said, your husband's not safe. You need to really seek help. And it was the one time in my mom's 83 years that she confided in someone and that someone said, we don't leave our family. We need to just deal with it. And my mom never spoke about it again. You know, I, I have a lot of feelings, probably anger towards that person because they don't know how much they, they hurt us without realizing and so, so in the book, the, you know, it, you get through childhood, you go off to university. And so you're now out of the house and you're living independently at university. Did that feel like a relief to you? Oh my gosh, it was the best time of my life. <laughs> <laughs> but did you also feel guilty for leaving your siblings behind and your mom? Yes, exactly. I would like to know. <laughs> I would like to know how you were able to just 
go gallivant to university and leave your poor little brother behind with this monster. Uh, he could fend for himself. He's fine. <laughs> um, you know, I actually write, write about that in the book. I felt such guilt and fear leaving my brothers. The difference was they had grown in stature and size. And so they were actually bigger than my dad. And so, you know, that was a little bit of comfort for me. But um, leaving, leaving home, you know, it's, it's like everybody that goes away to school that first year, you know, you're homesick despite what you're leaving behind. But I just blossomed and I found, you know, I found this whole other world out there. And people liked me. You know, and I grew up very insecure in high school. Like I was a nerd and didn't really have friends and, you know, all that stuff. University, it was just, yeah, I, I just shot, I shined. You're listening to the Concierge Minister Podcast. If you want to support this unique ministry, you can make a contribution through Patreon. Become a monthly donor or one-time giver. Your contribution allows Concierge Minister to provide new resources to help you live your best life. Just visit the show notes to find the link to Patreon. So that so you're living it up, you're living it up at university and everything as well. And tell us a little bit about that. So I took the teaching and I had changed my major halfway through. And so um, I had an extra semester that I needed to do my student teaching. So I actually went home to do it and went to the high school that my brothers were in. And the chaplain there was just this loving, gregarious, loved by everybody person. He seemed to sense that I was really struggling. And I went to him for some counseling and really trusted him. And that trust he took advantage of and ended up raping me. So first of all, I'm sorry about that. That really must have been very difficult for you, obviously. This person that was that that was the perpetrator, like tell me a little bit more about your relationship and and, and how involved because it's it's interesting to me that you said he was, you know a pastor or a chaplain and, and counseling you. And I always have this, you know, real strong interest in the boundaries between religious counseling and, you know, and, and if those, those folks often take advantage of the people they're, they're counseling. And so how like formal was that relationship? Like what um, were the power dynamics? I mean, he became a friend, you know, he, my brothers hung out with him. He had counseled our family when I was away at school. So he knew everything that was going on. He would use a son and I would babysit for them. And, you know, that was a draw. Um, as I said, he was very charismatic and just knew how to draw you in. I mean, when you listen to him, you wanted to give your heart to Jesus. Even an atheist, if you listened to him, you would have been ah. like, okay. <laughs> Many yeah, have tried. <laughs> believe you. <laughs> you know, so yeah, he was very gifted. And I think, you know, to, to jump in, you know, part of it, it went from counseling to, you know, when, when, you're, it's, when you're in a kind of a social setting, like a school, it went from that to, oh, and also, would you mind babysitting my kid, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. on occasion. So that's where I think, outside of the counseling space, your relationship expanded where you were now going to his house and babysitting his child. Is that correct? 
Yes. And his, you know, his wife was lovely too. And so she was the one that actually asked me to babysit, you know, she trusted me with her child. So that felt good. So, I mean, it sounds to me like often, um, I was actually just recently watching this TV show. We were talking about about grooming because in the show, I mean, it was very kind of clear that this abuser was, you know, grooming this this high school student for what ended up being abuse. And I'm wondering, like looking back now, do you see any of the, any grooming kind of examples of grooming kind of leading up to to the event? 100%. So it has taken me probably uh, the last five years to really understand what happened. For the longest time, I blamed myself. Yes, there was something that I should have known or felt or ran out or I don't know. You know, the interesting thing is that my oldest turned 22 um, just a couple of years ago. But when I realized that he was 22 and my rape happened when I was 22, a light bulb went off in my head because I looked at him and he's a kid. He's 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 a kid. You know, he still asks me for money. He's still like, you know, mommy, what's for supper? Like, I mean, he's a kid. And that was something that was very um, powerful for me. I had to learn to forgive my younger self. And um, it definitely was a journey to do that. Um, I have a lot of, um, I had a lot of disappointment, maybe anger, maybe um, just complicated feelings for my younger self. And it was a journey definitely for me to, with therapy, realize that I needed to cut her some slack. Five years ago, um, I started researching and doing some speaking about um, abuse. And I watched this video and there was this lady who was talking about rape. And she was saying how there's 10 steps a perpetrator takes to nab his victim. And as I was listening to the story, I was shocked because she was telling my story. I mean, detailed story of mine. And I was shocked because I'm, I w how, how did she know? And there's 10 steps a perpetrator takes. And my perpetrator, my rapist, did every one of those steps in an, that order, which was just baffling. Wow. You know, yeah. it, it's incredible that there's actually steps that I don't even think they know they're doing, you know, like. Um, so, yes, I had to really um, understand that I was a victim, you know, and that was really hard to accept. Yeah. So, so you said something interesting, and it's probably not going to be the thing that you think I'm going to, to, to go to now, but you said about five years ago, right? It's when you really started to unpack this. So I'm really interested to hear what was happening with you emotionally between five years ago and, you know, how many of the years, 20-something years before that? What was going on with you emotionally in, in that time frame, and how were you... How were you surviving? It's a good question, actually. Initially, mm -hmm. after I was raped, before getting married, you know, we took steps to let the church know what happened. And, you know, they pretty much turned a blind eye. After seeking help from leaders and nothing happening, I just kind of threw my hands up and realized, okay, there's nothing more I can do. And I think that that just was a chapter that I had to just put away. 
I have a very strong faith. And so I realized that I'm just going to have to leave this with God because I don't know what else to do. And so from probably the age of 26 till five years ago, it was all about my family. It was about having babies. It was about just living life. It's amazing how much you can just bury if you, if you choose to, as I'm, I'm sure many people do. But the thing about burying stuff is you don't realize how it's festering. You're listening to the Concierge Minister podcast with Dr. Kumar Dixit. So um, five years ago, my brother was a ministerial director in British Columbia, and he asked me if I would be willing to share my story. The interesting thing is, when I was raped, within that year or two, after kind of throwing my hands up, I always asked God to use my pain. I didn't know what he was going to do with it, but I just felt like I didn't want that to be wasted. And so I think I was looking for ways to help other people, even though I don't know exactly that I was equipped to help them. Um, But I had asked God to use my pain and then it kind of went silent. And so, you know, for 20 some years, it was just buried under. So when my brother asked me to speak in British Columbia, it was to a group of pastors. And that was just, it was so scary because, you know, I'm talking to pastors about a pastor. I shared my story and it was one of the most powerful moments of my life. I shared my story and I ended it by saying, you know, in the, in the past 25 years, not one person from my church has said they were sorry. And the president of the conference, after I was finished, um, came up and took the mic from my brother. And he said, you want an apology from your church? Um, I, as a minister of the gospel from the Seventh-day Adventist Church, am sorry. And it was just such, it's like the Band-Aid came off, the scar was there, and it was just, my tears just started coming. And I didn't realize how hurt I had been and how much I was holding in, but it was just, this incredible moment of healing starting to happen. It kind of went on from there. So that was the beginning of my journey to healing, to taking the Band-Aid off and, you know, letting the scar start to develop and watching that scar turn into something really beautiful. That's amazing. So now I'm interested to know, so now that you're on, you know, relatively speaking, the other side of of the the breakthrough moment i'm wondering looking back like do you have a better understanding of how you know bottling it up for 20 something years or or not addressing it or going dormant for that long how it actually impacted your life throughout those 20 something years that you didn't realize at the time but now you have a better understanding of so what actually happened is once that band-aid was ripped open as I said, everything started oozing and looking back, I can see it now, but at that time we didn't know what was happening, but my mental health took a turn and it's like my body could only handle so much. So, you know, just the betrayal of my dad, the betrayal of pastor, just all these hurts. It's like my body just like, because I had bottled it in, my body was like, we're done. And I ended up having somewhat of a mental breakdown. And um, that was a scary time. I mean, I I actually don't have a lot of memory of some moments in that, but um, my kids, my husband, my friends, um, for three years, it um, it was very scary. And so bottling all that up was like it just erupted, you know, and I was forced to have to deal with it to be able to, to be able to live again, 
you know. One of the things that happened after I spoke, there's a lot of things that actually happened. It wasn't like a perf- picture perfect ending when when the when I um, shared it with the church. A lot of things happened, which I'll share in my book. But um, and there was more betrayal by the church too. But um, what ended up happening is the church in Canada heard my story and actually offered me therapy that they were going to cover. It was just an incredible thing because, you know, you don't realize how powerful therapy or counseling is. You hear people talking about it, but first of all, it takes someone really good at their job to do that. And I think that it takes someone like me, they need to be, I need to be ready. You need to be ready to seek that help because if you're not ready, there's no point in doing it. You know, and I realized that I was just yearning for this um, healing to happen. And and I will say that it's been four years of hard, 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 hard work on my part. Very hard, you know, but it's also been hard work on my family. You know, they, they stood beside me. I was not able to be mother and wife the way I was, you know. I mean, they were the ones that ended up taking care of me. It's not a, um, an end, right? It's a, It's something that will be constant in my whole life. I will constantly have to work on this, but I am learning tools and there are tools out there that you can seek help with, with the licensed therapist. They know what they're talking about, especially for some of them. (laughs) You found a good one, which is great. (laughs) Actually, I've had a few of them over the years and just stopped because it was just like, I'm throwing money away. Yeah. Yeah. But you do need to find someone that works for you and you know, you have that connection, but they're also, they also know what they're talking about. So if you had to give a couple of tips for, for, for somebody that's struggling in a similar situation or, or, or just having, you know, feelings of betrayal or, or brokenness or trauma, what would that be? Um, first of all, there's always hope and there's always help. And I think the biggest step is seeking that help. It might be a friend, it might be your doctor. I mean, there's there's people out there that you can trust that are there to help you. And I think that's such a huge step. For me, it was a whole bunch of little different places that kind of, um, believe it or not, Oprah, the Oprah show was one of the places <laughs> I realized, whoa, there's a name for that. You know, <laughs> Oprah was one of those places where I realized that my mom was a battered woman. That was a, that's the place we learned that term. But what I would say to someone struggling is there is always hope. Even at my rock bottom, I had gone, you know, and I had to, I had to really reach out and say, I, I can't lift myself up anymore. You know, I love the, um, the poem footprints in the sand. And I always had that vision of, especially the last five years, I couldn't even walk, but I got through it because someone was carrying me through it. And it wasn't just God, it was my husband, it was my children, it was very close friends. So there's always hope, there's help. And um, don't short sell yourself because we're amazing people, you know, each of us. And we have a lot inside of us that if we dig really deep, you have the power to overcome whatever's hurting you. Rima, thank you so, so much for being so open and so vulnerable and sharing your story with us. I know, I mean, it must have been difficult at times. And I know that this is like your baby you're putting out into the world. And I wish you the best of luck with it. And I know that the book will reach a lot of people and be a great success. So go out and get Beautifully Broken. And we will catch you guys later. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to the Concierge Minister Podcast. If you want to learn more about growing in your faith or looking for an online faith community for support while you're on your journey, please visit conciergeminister.com or send us an email at concierge at gmail.com. Don't forget to click the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating. If you find this podcast helpful, please tell your friends about us. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, go and live your best life.